it feels like to me that it's getting harder every year to share the gospel. Uh, do you ever feel like that? Our neighbors, they have virtually no knowledge about God. And what little they have heard or what little they think they know have convinced them that God is irrelevant to them. Actually, that is the very situation in which Paul finds himself in this passage. Paul is addressing the Areopagus, which is the gathering of the Athens leading intellectuals who oversaw the city's education and religious life. And these people, uh, despite their great learning and sophistication, they had virtually no understanding of the true God. And what little they have heard about him have left them unimpressed. Uh, Paul's challenges are our challenges. The very questions that Paul answers for them are the questions that we have to answer for our neighbors. And so it is from this passage, when we look at Paul in Athens, we can learn and we need to learn how to be Christians today in the places and in the times that we live. And the first thing that we need to observe is appreciation and caution. Appreciation and caution. Um, last week, I um, had the opportunity to tell you a little bit about the rampant idolatry of Athens. Uh, one Roman writer, uh, perhaps a somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said that it was easier to find a god in Athens to find a man. It was a city full of idols uh, dedicated to the, Greek, uh, the gods of Greek pantheon. Uh, there were numerous temples, shrines, altars built uh, in their honor. And the whole mindset and the religious system of the Greek gods is that each god ruled over a, their particular little corner of the cosmos. And so what that means for regular people is that living a trouble-free life means paying due honors to these gods that each have a say over various aspects of life. Uh, but the Greek gods were notorious for infighting, and they often made conflicting demands. Now, please don't hear this or think about this and say, you know, those poor, uneducated people living in such superstitious way, have you ever felt that you were being pulled in a thousand different directions, each making demands upon you that feel so urgent and important? Well, if you understand that, that you begin to realize that in our own lives and in our hearts, there are seeds of idolatry. You feel these important demands in your lives, don't you? And sometimes they're more than you can handle. And they all seem important. They all seem to threaten the wellness of our lives if we don't pay attention to them. That's idolatry, or that's the avenue, that's the doorway of idolatry. Because these ancient people, they worried about the same things as you and I do. They worried about money. 
They're worried about health, disease, illnesses. They're worried about wars. They're worried about their families. They have the same worries as you and I do. And when they felt themselves being pulled in a thousand different directions, they turned to the gods that promised to help them in these particular areas of life. And that's that we you do realize, don't you, these poor Athenians. You know, how are you supposed to appease all these different gods with their conflicting demands? These people, they pin their hopes and dreams on these gods and they pray to them to keep away the things that they dreaded. But they could never be sure that they had done enough to get on the good side of every god. And so they spread their worship around. And they even built an altar to the unknown god. You know, you have to cover all your bases. You have to be sure. And Paul, we read, as he went around the city, he was deeply grieved. And he, Paul, knows the futility of idolatry. And yet, listen to what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, the Greek word uh, that is behind very religious, it can mean either devout or superstitious. But it's important to note here that Paul did not say to them, you are very religious as a way of putting them down. It was not meant as an insult. And if we, if we are attempting to understand what Paul is saying and why he's saying the things that he's saying, there are some things we have to, to realize, and that is this. Human culture is not entirely good, and human culture is not entirely bad. Let me explain it this way. When I say culture, what I mean by culture is uh, more than local habits, the way that we might talk about the culture of the American South or the culture of San Francisco. What I mean by culture includes that, but of course it means uh, something broader. Uh, I mean the, the great achievements, the great accomplishments of mankind. I mean the desires and the longings that are expressed in literature, arts, the, the kinds of mindset that are ingrained in the thinking patterns of people. And we need to recognize that all these things, human culture is not entirely good and it is not entirely bad. And recognize also that there are Broadly speaking, two influences that shape human culture. First, understand the human culture it is, is human culture, meaning it is the culture of men and women created in God's image. And because they are created in God's image, they cannot help but reflect their creator's brilliance and the love of things that are true and beautiful. You know, we live in an amazing age. I, don't, I think sometimes we forget that people are building spaceships. 
Have you seen the pictures that are coming out of James Webb Telescope? We live in an amazingly sophisticated and advanced age. My goodness, you can see live streaming from Mars. I mean, just think about that. Human beings have been able to accomplish great things. And in the human culture, there is an incessant quest and thirst for something that is transcendent. You know, I always chuckle a little bit when I watch these nature shows. You know, the host might be talking about some tiny insect or some some exotic animal, or they might be visiting some, some exotic locations, and they feel compelled, don't they, to often talk about Mother Nature. Because they are struck with wonder at what they see, but they can explain what they see except by referring to something transcendent that is above them. In human culture, we see both brilliance and longing for reason, beauty. And I love people that are good at what they do, whatever it is. When, when we become competent and when we become excellent at what, in what we do, you know, that's actually the mark of our Creator who mandated men and women to cultivate His creation. Now, notice the word cultivate and culture share the same root because part of what God commanded us to do when He said to have dominion is to cultivate. So human culture on the one hand is influenced by the fact that we are men and women created in God's image. But on the other hand, human culture is human, meaning men and women fallen in sin, who are in rebellion against God, who twist what God calls good and beautiful, who claim to be enlightened but in truth they are blind, who profess to be wise, but in reality they are foolish. And that is why human culture is not entirely good and it is not entirely bad. And what that means is that when we take seriously these realities and teachings of Scripture, we learn and we need to learn to both appreciate the, the impulse and the achievements of human culture and understand their limitations and liability. Paul, we saw in the beginning of chapter 17, he was deeply provoked by the idolatry in Athens. And yet when he says to them, I see that you are very religious, he did not mean that as a put down or as an insult because Paul saw in the Greek spiritual zeal something that is commendable. But he also saw that they were completely lost. And so there is both kindness in his words and also an honest directness. So Paul says, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And this already teaches us something really important. When you are talking to your unbelieving neighbors, understand that disagreement and conflict are inevitable. But wherever possible, build bridges. And ask yourself, how does our society ask good questions that it cannot answer? And ask yourself, how does our society express noble desires and longings that it cannot attain? That's how we begin to build bridges. And so what that means is that evangelism today is not going to be like drive-by shooting. It's going to be a thought-out strategy, and it's going to look a lot like long conversations. It's going to require spending time, investing time, understanding that what they live with, what they think about, what they desire, there are some good things that they're desiring, that they're asking, that they're longing for, but they can never answer because Men and women created in God's image. We are not just one thing. On the one hand, we are created in God's image, and that image is still active. But at the same time, we are fallen in sin. And that's what we see Paul doing here, appreciation and caution. Second thing we observe is how the unknown God becomes the known God. The unknown God becomes the known God. I, I mentioned earlier already that it, it feels like sharing the gospel is becoming harder every year. Why is that? Well, it used to be that our culture once could be called Christian. And by that, I do not mean that every American was a true believer. Uh, far from it. What I do mean is that there used to be in our culture in the shared mindset, in the assumption of, of our societies, a strong imprint of Christianity where people understood the basic teachings of scriptures, regardless of whether they believed it or not. There was a shared understanding. And so sharing the gospel usually did not mean starting from scratch. But that is no longer the case. Uh, because our neighbors, much like the Athenians that Paul is addressing, they have no conceptual framework to understand Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Paul has to start from the beginning. Now, understand that when Paul was speaking to the Jewish people who grew up with the Scriptures, he can jump straight into the Old Testament prophecies and demonstrate how Christ fulfills them. But it's a different matter altogether when Paul speaks to the Gentiles who have never heard about the God of Israel, who have never heard of the Scriptures or accept the Scriptures' authorities. There are some important background truths and foundations that have to be laid and have to be in place before the death and the resurrection of Christ can even begin to make sense. Uh, 
And so Paul starts from the beginning, and the first thing he tells them is this, the God who made the world and everything in it. God, he is the creator. God is not a part of the creation, but he stands outside and above it. Now, I have to say this. uh, You realize that the way that Luke summarizes Paul's uh, speech and sermon here, as is the case with every sermon and speech in Acts, you could read through this in a couple of minutes. But to be sure, when Paul was addressing the Areopagus, his speech was most certainly longer than a couple of minutes. So what Luke condenses and summarizes And he doesn't feel the the need to write word for word everything that Paul said. And it's it's enough for Luke to highlight the, the major points because Luke is expecting that we'll fill out the blanks from the scriptures because what Paul is teaching them is all coming from the scriptures. And so understand when Paul says, Uh, to the Areopagus that the God who made the world and everything in it, we understand and you bring into that statement everything that the scripture teaches about God as the creator. And what does the scripture say? And I can only touch upon this given our time constraints. The fact that he is the creator means that he has exclusive right to mankind's worship. And that already confronts the idolatry of the Gentiles. And the fact that he is the creator means that we were created to walk in his ways. That we were created to live for his glory. And so life that is spent and invested in any other projects or goals is missing the mark. We were created by God to reflect his righteousness and wisdom. So when we fail to live according to God's standard, we are guilty and we are fallen. These are some of the things that the the doctrine of creation uh, teach us from scriptures. Secondly, Paul tells them that God, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God alone sustains and provides for all things that he has made. Again, this challenges the Greek idolatry of trying to appease and trying to invest in these various gods who, who, who have a claim or they say they have a claim upon various aspects of life. But it is God alone who sustains and provides. And he does not depend on us, but we depend on him. Third, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God, God does not rule over a small corner of the cosmos, anxiously defending his little turf from his competitors. God rules everywhere, and over all times. And his powerful lordship 
is the source from which we receive homes and communities to call our own. And these things obligate us to seek Him who has given us these good gifts. And here Paul quotes uh, with approval a 6th century Greek poet named Epimenides who said, In him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul again quotes a 3rd century B.C. A Stoic philosopher, Aratus, who said, For we are indeed his offspring. Now that's very fascinating, which I don't have the time to dwell, in, dwell on. But the fact that Paul uh, was familiar with their culture, he had read their books, he had studied uh, the, the literature of uh, these people, and the fact that he quotes them approvingly, knowing that these Greek writers had Zeus, not God of Israel in their mind. But what Paul is showing us is a, a familiarity with the culture. And unless you are familiar, how could you have a conversation? But Paul also recognized that in their culture, they had questions that they could not answer, that they had desires that they could not satisfy, and that these questions and desires were all pointing to the true God, the God of Israel, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having laid down these basic foundations, the absolutely critical backgrounds before the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus can even begin to make sense, finally Paul brings it home. Being, the, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You know, Greek religion was all about that. Statues and idols made out of gold, silver, and marble and what Paul is teaching us is that why would you spend all that money dressing up your idols? You know, it, it's a really a testament to the importance they attached to these idols. How much you invest is a direct uh, outcome of how much these things take room in your heart. So these things were not light matters for these people. They were important matters that demanded their time, their resources, their investment. How much do you pay for subscription of various services, for gym membership, services that you have somehow convinced yourself you cannot live without? Now, I don't mean and I do not suggest that they are all aspects of idolatry. But, you know, once you decide something is important only then, then you invest resources, don't you? And that's what these people were doing. But everything that they counted precious and important and valuable, these idols that they had dressed up, you know, these things demonstrated their spiritual blindness and liability before God. And it's the same with our idolatry. 
You know, we feel ourselves being pulled in a thousand different directions. And we are desperate to gain some controls, to find a measure of security. But if in the pressures of life we turn to other sources of help than God, if in the pressures of life if we put our trust and confidence in any other people but God, you know, that opens the door of idolatry. And what Paul is saying here is direct, it's honest, it's kind, but it is confrontational and it is hopeful. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, on, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's gospel is always the death and the resurrection of Christ. But to people who have no capacity to understand, he has to give them the background, the basic foundational truths. And having shown and demonstrated that they are fallen, that they are sinful, that they have no resources to answer the important questions of their hearts, he demonstrates to them there is a God who patiently has waited and who has patiently with mercy delayed the judgment that you deserve. But there is hope for you. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus who died. Jesus who rose from the dead. Judgment is coming. And only the Jesus who died and rose from the dead can save you. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is saying that the unknown God, the important questions that these people could not answer, the unknown God is made known to us in Jesus Christ. And that you never have to wonder if you have done enough to get on God's good side. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die for good people. He died for sinners. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not merely rise to demonstrate us his power over death, but scripture teaches us, doesn't it, that he rose from the dead so that we might be justified with his righteousness. And you and I, we never have to worry or fear whether uh, we have made God happy. Because when God raised his son from the dead and he declared us righteous in his son, that is a statement that tells us that we are forever forgiven, justified, accepted, and beloved by God. You never have to wonder if Jesus can be trusted with your hopes and with your fears. Because Jesus is the true and the faithful Savior. And so quickly and finally, I'd like to talk to you about the right time and place. The right time and place. B. 
Being a Christian today is a hard task. I don't think I need to tell you this. It is hard. Uh, the people around us, they are against us. And they are ignorant. I do not mean that they are intellectually ignorant. They are spiritually ignorant. Um, they don't know anything about God. Because ours is a culture where even the, the cultural vestiges of Christianity has quickly faded away. What that means is we have to start from scratch when we share the gospel with people. We need to talk to them about the creator. We need to talk to him about his worthiness, who he is what our duties are before him. We need to talk about his holiness, his righteousness. We need to talk about his law. We need to talk about how we have failed to keep God's law. We need to learn to think hard, and we have to work hard. Doesn't this feel very daunting? It sure does to me. It feels like a lot of work. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember what Mordecai told Esther when she was frozen in fear over the immensity of her calling. So do you remember in Esther chapter 4, verse 4, how Mordecai says to her, because she was so frozen, so she was so overwhelmed by what uh, she understood was being demanded of her. Mordecai says to her, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The Lord who has determined allotted periods and boundaries for kingdoms and nations he has also de uh, determined the allotted times and the boundaries of your life. Meaning, it's not an accident that you are here today. It is of God's wisdom, His purpose, and His will. And for just such a time, as this. The task is daunting to have long conversations, to have repeated conversations, to invest your time to listen, really listen. What matters to them? What are the questions that they are asking that are important but they can't answer? What longing desires do you see in their heart? Good, noble desires that they have no way of attaining. It is a daunting task, but I think that's okay. Because unless it was daunting, unless it was very difficult, would we ever see God's help? Knowing my heart, if I thought something was easy, I'm not going to pray about it. You know, if I thought something was easy, I'm not going to be asking for God's help. 
And so it's really important for us to recognize that it is critical for us to learn from Paul to think about how to ask questions, how to observe the culture, to think about the ways that we approach our neighbors. But the conversation does not start there and does not end there. You see, where it starts for Paul is his deep faith for God, is his deep love for Jesus. It is his deep utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we have seen, haven't we, how the early Christians prayed and fasted, and Paul himself would pray and ask for prayers. Yes, he thought about the mechanics of conversation, how to approach our neighbors, but it all began and ended with faith, love, and dependence. And I think we sometimes forget that. We sometimes spend all of our time thinking about methods, approaches, arguments, but we forget that it begins and ends with prayer. It begins begins and ends with faith. It begins and ends with love, love for Jesus and love for our neighbors. And understand this, that God, God puts you here and now to serve him with joy and to see his grace work through you. And so note how Luke ends this passage. He says, Some men joined Paul and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite. The fact that he is called the Areopagite, he is named after the council, it probably means at the very least he's member of that, that August council, the leading intellectual, if not the very leader of that council. And we hear that not only Dionysius, but other men, and a woman named Damaris and others. God, God will make his word to bear fruit. And you and I, we only need to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your instructions. And we pray, O Lord, that in the difficult challenges we face of being faithful to you and being your witnesses, that we may not be so or solely concerned with methods and how-tos, but that we will be deeply motivated and energized by our faith in you, by your love for us and our love for you, and that in everything we would pray and receive from you the strength, the resources that we need. And so we pray, O Lord, Lord, we grieve that so many of our neighbors and even our family members do not know you. Please use us. Bless our work and our labors for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.